Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, the show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm Michael. And I'm Corey. And on today's episode, we're talking about Brown Girl in the Ring by Nalo Hopkinson. I've already reviewed this on my blog. Anyone who read that review knows that I really like this book. And obviously, I got at least one other person to read it. <laughs> at least one, yeah. Actually purchase it so that we could talk about it. Normally I would say you can't complain about spoilers, but since this is a fairly recent book, spoiler alert! <laughs> recent, as in it was published in 1999. Which is recent in the book world. <laughs> yes. So, plot summary. Brown Girl in the Ring takes place in Toronto after Mayor Rob Ford has gone through all of his policies and destroyed the center of the city. <laughs> to point out, that's a joke, but not by much. <laughs> It is the essential policy that a lot of mayors have pursued in Toronto of not funneling money into the center of the city. The center of the city collapses because all the money has been funneled to the suburbs. All the affluent people move out. The bridges get blocked off, and people are left in what is essentially a third-world country in the middle of Toronto, where our main character, Tijan, lives with her grandmother, Grosjean, and... There's organ harvesting going on in the background of all of this. It's kind of a <laughs> subplot that still has influence on the main plot. Yes. It starts out as a science fiction novel, but it quickly becomes clear that this is, in fact, an urban fantasy and that it is about the development of Tijan learning her skills from her grandmother in Western African or Caribbean magic so that she can defeat the evil people who have taken over the city, specifically one person. The gang leader, Rudy Sheldon, who lives in the CN Tower. <laughs> I, I thought that was a nice touch. I like the fact that this gang leader has taken over the CN Tower and turned it into his personal palace. It was pretty funny. <laughs> well, because he's a sorcerer, right? A sorcerers yeah. have to live in towers. I didn't even make that connection, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was obvious. But anyway. <laughs> it probably was. I just missed it. <laughs> the first point that I want to speak to is the fluidity of the genre in this book, in that the opening very much seems like it's going to be a William Gibson-esque cyberpunk kind of thing, in that there's it's the near future, society has collapsed in at least one region, there's organ harvesting going on, there are organs that are grown from pigs, but then Premier Utley wants to get an actual human organ transplant because basically pig flu. You know, I feel like we should be able to make a joke there, but I honestly don't know much about Ontario politics, so... Yeah. Anyway, when we start out, it very much seems like it's going to be a science fiction novel until we actually join Tijon in this city and find out that magic works. No, um, yeah, I, I kind of, I agree that there's very much the science fiction elements present, and you do see them throughout the book, um... I can kind of see why you'd go for the comparison to Neuromancer, but I didn't get the impression that this was going to be very cyberpunk, to be honest. Like, no, it was... I'm more thinking of it as an anti-Neuromancer that tries to throw you off just at the beginning. Okay, no, I, I can see that. <laughs> In that it's not going to be about hackers living under the grid. It's about, basically, there is no grid because society's gone. Collapsed. 
Well, society's collapsed and rebuilt itself along new rules that seem to work better in some respects, believe it or not, and much worse in others. Yeah. So I want to now speak to the particular nature of this setting because it's steeped in Caribbean and West African culture and folklore, even down to the language that's used in the book and how some segments are written in phonetically in Caribbean dialect, patois, whatever you're willing to call it, and that the representation of this Toronto is a very multicultural one, especially among the lower classes, and that the white people seem to have left the city. Um, not... Yeah, for the most part they have. Not all of them have. There are a couple yeah, who are mentioned. What's interesting about the ones who are, um, there's a couple who runs a butcher shop, and butcher in quotes because they're selling like squirrel and rabbit and other stuff like that. It mentions how they used to be lecturers at the local university. U of T! Yeah, so there's kind of this weird dynamic where it's like, okay, we've got people who would have been poor and academics, which not quite the same thing, but... It's whoever did not make the exile to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So there were some people used to be affluent who decide to stay in the city anyway because that's their home. Mm -hmm. But most of the affluent people are gone, and most of what's left is immigrants, children of immigrants. um, Street children. Lower classes, street people. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is part of why I said that Toronto has collapsed into this third world kind of feel, and that's well, I mean, electricity is not really around, or it's generated on a private basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the city's separated into kind of warring factions, gangs, um, and so on. There's definitely the gang elements. I didn't get. There are the warring factions, and there aren't because there's a bit of fluidity between the areas. Um, I'm going to butcher the name. Tijan? Is that how you're saying the main character? Tijan, yeah. Tijan, okay. Yeah, that's not how I read it. Um, Tijan seems, for the most part, to have the ability to kind of move through the city at will. I think... So it is kind of established that there are a few neutral parties that nobody will threaten. Mm -hmm. And it seems they're usually those who provide some kind of service to the greater community overall. I mean, Tijan and her grandmother, for example, provide medical care. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's like people are able to recognize that, okay, yes, this is somebody who you don't want to piss off because they will help you. As opposed to the vans that go around the city with the other doctors. Yeah, the um, the ambulances that only show up if somebody's dying, it seems, and uh, the ambulance crews who are wearing these bulletproof suits that look like vulture masks. It's like They're plague doctors. Yeah, effectively they are. <laughs> But they're only there to take organs for the rich who are out in the suburbs, even though they're setting themselves up as an NGO that's going in to help people. So if you actually want help, you do not go to the affluent people in Toronto or around, because the people around Toronto aren't going to help you. And it's only going back to these folk doctors that you will actually get any aid. (laughs) Otherwise, everyone's ripe for exploitation. Yeah, well, again, you mentioned the folk doctors, and that does tie in with the plot, because from a Western Judeo-Christian perspective, it's effectively what we would call the voodoo, and I do want to put that in quotes, but at the same time, it's it's folk magic that in this universe is actually magic. It it does have supernatural power. Things do happen because of it. It's not just superstition. Mm -hmm. 
So I want to move on now to the non-traditional nature of the main characters, in that Tijan is a single mother uh, with a loser boyfriend. (laughs) And the other really major character is Grosjean, who's her grandmother, this old, very strong woman. Well, this is a very... Yeah, I, I thought Mijon was a much more interesting character. I mean, she's very strong, she's very independent. Grosjean? Or, sorry, yes, Grosjean. <laughs> I found Grosjean was the more interesting character. She's very strong, she's very independent, she's very smart. Mm-hmm. And one thing I found was very interesting about her, too, is that she's the leader of her particular little religious community, which you don't, in the world we live in, in the world we, we're used to, you don't usually see women in those kind of roles. So I thought it was neat how that was kind of built around her. Mm-hmm. As very much the story of Tijong growing into that role so that she could eventually replace Grosjean. Well, it's not even... Yeah, part of it's Tijong growing into that role. A large part of the tension, though, comes from Tijong not wanting that role. She feels like she's being forced into it. Which, mm-hmm. if, if you think about it, is almost weird that a character would feel like they're being forced into being a strong, independent individual. <laughs> like, that, that's normally held up as a good thing, and yet for a large part of the book, she doesn't want it. Yeah, she's being dragged into adulthood, which in this case also involves gods and spirits and ghosts and duppies. Yeah, I really like the supernatural stuff in this one. Yeah, this is also a very family-centered story. And that nearly all the great revelations that hit you really hard as you go through the book have to do with people finding out they're related to each other, or having to do with relatives, or having to do with people who are brought into the family or being expelled from it. Or people trying to join but not being welcome, in the case of Dijon's loser boyfriend, whose name I forget. Tony. Tony, Tony, thank you. Yeah, so a very family-centered story. One in which the main character is not perfect, obviously. Not only does she not want to get dragged into or forced into this role as a leader of a community, she also makes really terrible mistakes earlier on in getting involved with the wrong people, such as Tony. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring that up, because you've got a character who is, in many respects, very selfish, and in many respects also kind of stupid. Um, She doesn't want to be forced into these things. She doesn't want to be forced to take her grandmother's route. She doesn't want to be forced to take this route. She doesn't want to be forced that route, that route, that route. But she never actually really establishes what it is she wants. Like, all, all the only thing she seems to want is to not be told what to do. Beyond that, she has no freaking clue. Mm-hmm. Going further on with the non-traditional characters, I also note there are very few male figures in this novel that come off very well. I think beyond the man who owns the curry shop, I can't really think of any. The academic couple who own the butcher shop. Yeah, they're not in the novel. They're not really important characters, though. though. Yeah. Um, of the two male, prominent male characters, there's Tony, the affirmation loser boyfriend, who is a very weak person, obviously very sexually attractive, which is why he's able to persuade Tijon to keep on going back to him and is the father of her soon-to-be-born child, but... Or not soon-to-be-born, already-born. Recently-born. Recently born child. <laughs> uh, he's a drug addict. He keeps on falling in with the wrong people. He wants to escape, but he doesn't have the strength of will to be able to do it. 
Just, yeah, very weak individual. Um, I can think of one positive male character, but I'll let you finish uh, running down the negatives. Well, yeah, the other negative male character is, of course, Rudy, the evil crime lord sorcerer boss. And again, I, I found him to actually be quite interesting, too, because he is he's one of the more complex characters in the book. On the one hand, he's very strong, very ruthless as a gang leader. Um, but on the other hand, from the hints you get of his backstory, he became so strong effectively because he was so weak and petty earlier in his life. He got tired of being weak. He was always very annoyed, very petty, very greedy, very frustrated that people had more power than him. So he did everything he could to basically steal or gain that power and then rule with an iron fist. Also very charismatic, and you have to take into account, well, this is a big spoiler, but... Grosjean did get involved with him when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And well, he's he um, children with him. He's Tijon's grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there was some attraction between them beforehand, and then he went down a darker path. Well, I thought uh, Grosjean. I thought Grosjean kicked him out because he was basically a drug addict and useless and all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he, in his younger days, he was basically what Tony is portrayed as being. But became something very different afterward. In that it's very visceral, the kinds of... Well, this whole novel is very visceral in its descriptions of violence, which is part of the things I like about it, in that it doesn't glorify any of these acts and shows that they're really quite gross. (laughs) Well, they're quite gross, and they're also quite frightening, not even on a psychological level, like on a very... Because the spiritual aspects of this book are so important, they're very spiritually frightening concepts in some cases. And because it's so abrupt in the forms of this violent takes, that someone's mm-hmm. just walking around, then the next instant they've been gutted, or their flesh is about to get stripped all the way off. Yeah, something. like, li- there, there is a description of a character being flayed, which is quite gruesome. Well, that, isn't that how the novel opens? Uh, or it might be a little bit later on. It's probably just a little later on, but not by much. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of positive male characters, um, Tijon's newborn son, he's just referred to as baby throughout the book because for some tradition that I wasn't quite clear on, he can't be named until a certain point. So she just keeps calling him baby. And I found he was kind of the positive male, if you will, in terms of he's the one who has the potential to not be an idiot because he hasn't grown into being one yet. Because he's the unmolded clay, if you will, he's the one who has the potential to be a positive male force, as opposed to ending up like his washed-out father or washed-out of a great-grandfather. Moving maybe along that line of family is also the representations of class here, and that this is a very class-based novel, as I've already alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. Mostly, though, the upper classes are absent, or in the fringes, unless you count the crime bosses. Well, um, you mentioned um, you mentioned parallels with Neuromancer by William Gibson. Um, I know one thing that's kind of repeated in a lot of his early cyberpunk work is you've got worlds where the underclasses literally live at the bottom layer of the world, and then there's like giant towers and geodesic domes built over them, and the rich people live on top of those. So it, it's quite literally a physically structured world to represent a physically structured society. In this case, basically the same thing, except instead of building up, it's building out. The city core is where the poverty exists, the suburbs are where the wealthy exist. Mm -hmm. And I should note that the title refers to the concept of the donut, 
which has happened to other cities where the center has collapsed in that <coughs> Detroit. <fashion>. Yes. <laughs> to create this kind of geographical boundary between classes that we do see it in big cities anyway, in that certain neighborhoods are dedicated to one thing or another, or as in Paris, the fringes around Paris are for the lower classes in most cases. But here it's even more stark in that there is no government within the center of that ring. Uh, also, the title is taken from a Bonnie M song. That's oh, is it? Moment. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. It's the first thing that comes up if you Google Brown Girl. <laughs> Good to know. So how did you feel about the gods, Corey? Because I know this is the part you want to talk about. <laughs> I, yeah, there's, um, I forget which, what the name in the book was, but there's one figure who comes up effect quite a bit who I'm familiar with under the name of Baron Samity. He's got the big white top hat, like the skeletal face paint, so just really interesting, creepy figure. And, and a positive one in this book. Yeah, <laughs> and um, if I'm not mistaken, he's a death god, isn't he? Yep. I, I like that idea. I like the fact that the death gods are not, not only are they not portrayed as evil, but instead, like, death gods are usually portrayed as, okay, they're evil, because death is evil, apparently, or they're portrayed as neutral because death is not evil. In this case, they're actively portrayed as good. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're just the guardians of another part of life, and they do their job in the most positive manner they can. And I, I thought that was an interesting take. Of course, our ending has a giant god showdown, which is quite impressive, even though it is a little bit uh, deus ex machina. A bit. Case, yeah, those. I think wanna... it's described in such an awesome manner that you don't really care. <laughs> I cared a bit. I was. I thought the ending could have been a bit better, but that's just me. Yeah, but giant gods battling over Toronto. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But no, I like. Um, there's another part where Mijon takes Tijon to Grosjean. Little, or ah, the name. Mijon is her mother, who does yes. figure prominently, but only after one of the aforementioned big gut punching revelations. That yeah, we can get to that in a minute. Increasingly frequently as you go on. Yeah, um, Grosjean takes Tijon to this old chapel in a graveyard that she's kind of commandeered as her little, well, effectively her church or her temple. And um, what I found was interesting is there are statues there of Christian saints, and amongst them she's mixed her own deities, her own gods, representations of them. But it's not like there's any kind of distortion or corruption or changing the Christian deity or the Christian saints to make them something else. They're still very much held up as the Christian saints, but she just, you know, she bows to them, she thanks them, she makes them part of it all, as opposed to trying to make them something different that somehow fits in. I I found the adaptability, the willingness to incorporate other aspects very interesting. Well, I was under the impression that in this world, all the different folk magics of various societies are real. It's just that we're centered around this Caribbean family, and that's what becomes most prominent. Um, yeah, and no, I can see that, because, I mean, Tarot is mentioned briefly, and Grosjean mentions learning um, about North American and Canadian herbs from some Native American friends of hers. Yeah, okay, I can, I can see that. That's definitely there. And going back to the visceralness of the book that I mentioned earlier, the Magic practices that are described here do involve a lot of blood, in most cases. Yeah. (laughs) Whether it's sacrificing a chicken to stripping someone's skin off of them, and 
draining their soul into a calabash. As you say, for a non-horror book, this had a lot more blood than some horror stories. <laughs> it did, it did. It, it hits you, but it's also a somewhat light, adventurous story as well to counterbalance some fairly disturbing and disgusting parts that happen in between. Yeah. Well, like the creation of the Doopy Ball, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but again, we, I think we can get to that in a minute. Um, anything else you wanted to touch on with the spirituality side of things? Uh, I think I've covered everything I've wanted to talk about there beyond the Duffy. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm good. The identity of the Duffy spirit and uh, what you thought about that particular twist, which when I read it, I was just like, oh my god! I Yeah, I think it, um, it was definitely a twist. It was definitely surprising. That, I think, was probably one of the most frightening things in terms of Rudy's character. Um, do you want me to explain how it works? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's... Um, Rudy, the, the antagonist, has something called a duppy bowl or a doopy bowl. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And effectively what it is, it's a bowl that has the spirit of a formerly living person trapped in it. And because they're a spirit, they have incredible power and can do all sorts of crazy, horrible things. But they also need to be fed. And the way they're fed is that you pour blood into the bowl and the duppy eats it. But the thing about the duppy is it's a slave. It's not... On the one hand, there's a certain degree of willingness that's needed, but on the other hand, you also force the person who becomes the duppy to become willing, as it were. Um, duppy, or the spirit in the duppy bowl is Mijon, Tijon's mother, and Rudy's daughter. And I found that drilled home just what a cold-hearted bastard he was that he did this to his own daughter. Yeah, and also that he didn't kill her, because uh, if you kill the body, the spirit is weaker. That he's able to have such a strong duppy because he left her as this mindless, a body without a soul, basically, that just wanders around the streets of Toronto. Yeah, everyone thinks she's just a crazy homeless person. Turns out that, no, she's actually... (laughs) She is Rudy's main servant who does a lot of the really terrible things. Well, the real source of his power, too. Because, I mean, he he flat out admits he needs the duppy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... An assassin, it's a servant, it will collect things, it will allow you to control people, it will... Just all of the real power he has comes from having this thing. Yeah, but Mijon turns out to be a really interesting character in the latter half of the book. She has to be given exact commands, so she has to do what Rudy tells her. But she's still trying to work to basically save her daughter, even though she's being commanded to destroy Mm them. Well, (laughs) effectively, she finds a way to rebel, even though one shouldn't exist. Well, I mean, I I find um, her backstory as well, in terms of becoming the duppy, I I think she's very much meant to represent um, a lot of the same choices Tijan faces throughout the book. It's just, she's the one who's faced with these choices and made the wrong choices. Mm -hmm. And so she she kind of exists as the warning to her daughter. And not not so much that she's, you know, consciously warning her daughter, but we as the reader get that. Yeah, because Tijon doesn't know this for the longest time, too, mm-hmm. about what connection that they have together. There is a really hilarious part involving Mijon, because if you touch one of these duppies, your skin gets basically flayed off. Yeah. <laughs> and one dumb punk, when he sees the duppy floating around, he's just like, I'm going to bat that with my hair. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like this floating cloud of fire. That's the best way I can describe it. I'm, was that character high or drunk or something? Because I, I think that was mentioned. 
Probably. If it wasn't mentioned in that exact spot, it was mentioned throughout the story that people doing drugs. Mm, yes, lots of people do drugs in this novel. Yeah, they, um, the one, the most commonly used one, it's, they refer to it as buff, or bufo, which I think comes from a bufo toad. And it kind of creeped me out, actually, because they talk about how you don't inject, inject it, you don't snort it, you kind of, like, slash it into your arm with a knife. Like, that made me cringe. Well, again, lots of cringeworthy stuff in here, and I don't think I'd recommend this book to someone with a weak stomach. See, it's weird, because, I mean, I could take the horror scenes, I could take all the gross blood stuff, but when they mention how you do the drugs, that's what creeped me out. Mm-hmm. And I think that, because that, that's the part most grounded in something that could be real, I think. Yeah, well, there is a lot of stuff in here that does apply to mm-hmm. Toronto today. Toronto in 1999, Toronto today. <laughs> well, any big city today. Like even some small cities today. <laughs> it's not completely divorced from reality, and it, it is very much rooted in the city. You can tell that Nalo Hopkinson really loves Toronto. Not only in this book, but any book. I guess Toronto. Toronto. Oh, okay. Toronto. <laughs> um, I think Toronto, if you're actually pronouncing it correctly. I don't think I've ever heard anyone pronounce it correctly, though. Who knows? Who knows? So, it's like Vancouver is how people say Vancouver, so... Or Yellowknife is how some people say Whitehorse. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're the one who lives in the territories. That's your burden to bear. <laughs> So, the reason why we were trying to get this podcast out this month is because this month was Canada Reads on CBC Radio, which I think I should explain to people outside of Canada because it's kind of weird and distinctly Canadian. Basically, it's a reality TV show, but on the radio, where there are six books and Canadian celebrities are brought on panels to defend said books, and each day one is voted off for a week. Until there's a declared winner of Canada Reads for that year. Not the biggest fan on my end. Well, a lot of the books that get picked are... I don't want to say they're bad, because they've obviously picked some very good books. I mean, this was one of them. Um, But they tend to be books that are very overtly Canadian. Yeah. there's There's that certain aspect of Canadiana that goes into most of the choices. Not all of them. The occasional sci-fi or fantasy piece sneaks through. But, yeah, like there's a very patriotic element to it as well, as opposed to an element of, okay, what's the best book to come out of the country, regardless of where it's set? Yeah, so... As Corey said, Brown Girl in the Ring was part of Canada Reads for 2008. It did get voted off before the end. Um, but wasn't there the is first a, book voted off? It wasn't the first book voted off. Actually, Canada Reads 2008 was unusual in that there were not one, not two, but three fantasy novels wow. on, on the ballot. And not, obviously, in that order, they all got voted off. Because I don't think... Uh, fantasy novel would ever win Canada Reads, really. <laughs> but anyway, that year there was Ice Fields by Tom Wharton, which I read a few weeks ago, and Not Wanted on the Voyage by Timothy Findlay. Wait, Not Wanted on the Voyage was on that and it got voted off? Yeah. Wow, okay, I, yeah. Do you want to know who won? The thing about Canada Reads is that you can always tell which novel is going to win before you win. <sighs> like, this year I knew that the Arendo was going to win, and it did, but... Yeah. Uh, so 2008. Yes, in 2008, the novel Sorry. that won was not the short story collection by a really respected writer. It was not 
Timothy Findlay. It wasn't Tom Wharton's Icefields, which is definitely a very Canadian novel. It was King Leary about hockey players. Oh, God. And there's probably a reason you haven't heard about this novel since. I'm kidding. How the hell... Uh, I'm sorry, just... No, but Timothy Finley. You knew How it was the... going to win. I knew yeah. it was going to... Like, I, I was still an undergrad, so I wasn't listening to CBC Radio when this particular one came out. Otherwise, I would have heard about this novel and read it a lot earlier. <laughs> 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 the Brown Girl in the Ring. But, um, yeah. yeah, usually fantasy science fiction, if they're on the list, they don't last for very long. This year... Which Mad Adam by Margaret... Wasn't Mad Adam? No, The Year of the Flood was the science fiction novel on the list by Margaret. I that got voted dis- off right away. Which is... You see, that's funny, because I, I would dispute calling it sci-fi just because various reasons that... Yes, because Margaret Atwood says it's speculative fiction. We all know, well, it's because yeah. I I read the first one in the series, Oryx and Craig. <laughs> hated it, so... Um, now I have to remember what I was going to say. Yes, near the end, when there were three novels that were being put down, one of the novels this year got slammed by some of the panelists because it had, what about that science fictional element in the one part? Which is the same thing if you listen, I did go back and listen to the 2008 uh, Canada Reads, at least the first few episodes. And it was the same thing where people defending other books were like, this felt too comic booky to me, or it felt too particular was the main thing. They said it felt too particular for the Canadian experience, too rooted in Caribbean folklore, too rooted in the multicultural scene in Toronto to be a book that all of Canada would want to read. That makes absolutely no sense. Especially when the counter-argument I could make is that how is King Leary representative of the entire Canadian experience instead of a narrow slice of hockey fans, right? Well, exactly. I mean, again, we're getting a bit off topic here, but I mean, I've made this argument in other places before that who's to decide what Canadian content is? Like, if I'm not ragging on hockey, I'm just using it as a good example. If somebody says that Canadian content is hockey, you have to write about hockey to write Canadian literature, well, what if I don't want to write about hockey? I don't I don't follow the sport. I'm not a particular fan of it. So does that mean my work as a writer wouldn't be considered Canadian simply because it's not on that topic? I mean, this is a big country. There are a lot of people here who do like other things. Well, this is just a problem in general with the Canlit scene in that there are lots of fantasy and science fiction authors in Canada, but a lot of the time you don't really re- realize they're Canadian. Because <laughs> well, they're never talked about on CBC Radio, on Writers and Company, or on the next chapter. There seems to be this weird thing in Canadian literature where there's this very big push, for whatever stupid reason, to define what is Canadian literature. People want to be able to actually have this like definitive checklist where they can say, yes, this is Canadian. But other countries don't do that. There is no like checklist of what makes American literature. There's no checklist of what makes British literature or French literature or Russian literature. But for whatever reason, the Canadian literary establishment seems obsessed with defining itself, which, again, can be very limiting to creativity, very destructive to writers' careers. Like, mm-hmm. Especially because shortly after I read Brown Girl in the Ring and Nello Hopkinson's short story collection, Skin Folk, I was very willing to declare her probably my favorite Canadian author, one of the best ones working in the country, regardless of genre. And I was going to say, the immigrant story is such a Canadian story. Why would anybody... Like, I don't understand why they would have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. 
So this moves on to my next point, which is how I was actually kind of peeved and angry that I hadn't heard about Nello Hopkinson a lot earlier. This book was published in 1999. I should have known about it. (laughs) It won a bunch of awards. It won Best New Um, Novel Award. Sorry, I think it's printed on my copy somewhere. Or maybe it's not. John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, I think, was one of them. Yeah, I think it was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award, too, which is a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. And even then, it made it as far as to be nominated on Canada Reads in what was admittedly an unusual year for selections. But mm-hmm. it seemed big enough that I should have heard about it. And I didn't oh. hear about it until... Oh, go on. Here we go. Found the awards. Um, it was the winner of the the Locus Award for Best First Novel and the John W. Campbell Award. It was shortlisted for the Philip K. Dick Award and shortlisted for the James Trip Tree, sorry, Tip Tree Junior Award. Mm-hmm. So I mean that that's an impressive resume for a first novel. It had some pretty big name blurbs on it too, didn't it? Uh, my copy was a later printing, so I can't say. But it's got a quote here from the Sunday Denver Post about how good it is, and from Emerge. And from another author who I haven't heard of. Who? who who's the author? Uh, Karen J. Fowler. Okay, yeah, she's a pretty big name in okay, I, <laughs> It says she wrote the Jane Austen Book Club. That doesn't sound... Okay. Eh, maybe I'm getting her confused with someone else. Maybe. I, 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 I'm sure whatever Karen J. Fowler is yeah, writing regardless is quite good, to, but I haven't heard of her. to say that she was recognized outside of the genre, too. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't really twig on to Nella Hopkins until I listened to a podcast interview with her last year, because one of her books was coming out, I think, Sister Mine. Um, maybe. I know that she had one released quite recently. I saw yeah, it in hardcover. It was her most recent book, and she was talking about how she'd gone through this really bad period where she wasn't able to write or publish anything at all. Uh, I had a lot of personal issues, and medical issues and so on, so she had kind of, she'd kind of dropped off the map for a few years, which is probably why I hadn't heard about her in the interim between this almost explosive entry into the literary scene till now. Hmm. At least that's the most likely explanation to me, because that, again, in 2008 I wasn't paying attention to CBC Radio. Um, I I remember seeing a copy of this a number of years ago when I was working at a bookstore. We had it on the shelf, and I remember at the time thinking, oh, that looks kind of interesting, but I never followed through on it until you'd mentioned it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, that was... And I looked it up, I'm like, oh yeah, I had seen that before. And so from there, I took the time to track it down. Well, it after listening to this podcast that I started to notice the book <laughs> <laughs> showing up in used bookstores and in the library and so on, and I ended up reading it based on that interview. But I feel like she should be far more prominent than she is. Like, I should have heard about her a lot earlier than this. There are other authors who are also kind of hidden in the Canadian literary scene that I feel like I should have heard about a lot earlier. Yeah, I mean, again, until now. we could and maybe probably should do an entire podcast on the problem with problems with the, the idea of Canadian literature and the literary establishment. But you're right. Like, I mean, this was a good book. I had a few small issues with it that we can get to in a minute. But overall, yeah, this, this should have had a lot more recognition. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that closes out that part of the conversation so we can move on to what you just mentioned. <laughs> My issues with it? Um, yeah. <laughs> again, good. It, it was a good first book. I really liked the world building. 
Um, the char- a few of the characters annoyed me in a good way, by which I mean, like, they're irritating, frustrating people, but they're well-constructed as characters, so I, I can believe them. I, I take them legit. I read the character, I'm like, yes, you are a person. I, I can believe you- in you. Um, my, I love the world building, I love the magic, I love the setting, I love how, from a Canadian perspective, how unique this is, because we don't see a lot of this kind of thing. Like, this is, as a science fiction or fantasy fan, I'm used to, you know, the guy running through the field with the sword. I'm not used to a story set in Toronto from, I'm going to use the F word here, from a feminist perspective. Mm-hmm. So that it was quite unique in that respect. Um, my only real complaint, I found the plot was a bit formulaic. Like, you could see rising action, rising action, rising action, climax, falling action. And I think maybe that's a symptom of being a first novel, but I think with how rich the world this is set in is, I think the plot could have been a little more than it was. Mm-hmm. Because it is actually a really short novel. <laughs> yeah, I, I dusted this off. I need to get into this. This is... Even with large print, I don't think it even cracks 300 pages, does it? My copy is... Let me check here. 271 pages, and that's not including things like the table of contents. So Yeah, and fairly large print for a book of this kind. And actually, fairly wide spacing, too. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's not a very long book. and No, it's it, not. It has a plot that I think I was more warm to because it is very pulpy. This might also turn off a lot of people, too. I didn't find it particularly pulpy, to be honest. I mean, um, it was a s- simple plot format, but there was a lot of interesting things along the way. Yeah, not the stuff hung around it, just in its straightforwardness. Mm-hmm. And that once it gets rolling, you, you don't get any pauses. Yeah, and I mean, it just you, barrels on forward. You do have a very clearly defined villain who is a villain. You do have a very clearly defined reluctant protagonist who is a reluctant protagonist, but Again, they are interesting enough as people and as characters to keep or to keep my interest at least. So Yeah, I think the major problem for me is that I wanted to stay in that world for much longer. I yeah, I'd say that was my problem too. This this could have been so much longer and so much more. Yeah. But as a first novel, it's a pretty amazing accomplishment. <laughs> I would say it reads like a first novel, but not in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. Very snappy. Get to the point, again, that can be a drawback, but you can polish it off in a day. You'll have fun with it. I, I found it was very, I mean, it, it's very well written. It's very, it's smart without being pretentious. It's fun without being cheesy. It's frightening and visceral in a way that just works. Yeah, I think it's a very good poster child for an idea that was put forth in an essay by Charles DeLint that was collected in a book about fantasy and science fiction in Canada which was about magic realism and the immigrant experience and how immigrants within North America can bring in bring in their cultural baggage and are able to mold it towards whatever new country they're in and create these kind of hybrid worlds. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean that make very... that make the scene a lot more interesting and diverse than it otherwise would be. <laughs> well, as you say, I think what should be a very big strength in Canadian literature seems to be downplayed in that because we are I mean, we are an immigrant nation. I mean, people who immigrated here greatly overwhelm those who didn't. And you would think having all of these unique perspectives blending together to create all these rich worlds would be a strength. But for whatever reason, it's dismissed as a weakness. Mm -hmm. Seems like a good point to sign off on. All right.
All right. Thank you for listening to the One Last Sketch podcast. You can visit my website, onelastsketch.wordpress.com, for more episodes, interviews, blog posts, and so on. This has been your host, Michael. And his friend, Corey. And we hope you come back to listen to another episode. If you like this podcast, please recommend it.